Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I am Sarah Seidner, and this is CNN Tonight. We are going to take you through the momentous legal and political twists and turns former President Donald Trump and the country, frankly, are now experiencing. First, there is new reporting this evening related to the unprecedented search of Trump's primary home. There are so many questions yet to be answered about what led FBI agents to Mar-a-Lago on Monday and also who may have led them there. The Wall Street Journal is now reporting there was an informant, someone familiar with documents stored at Trump's residence, who told investigators there could be more classified documents after the National Archives already retrieved 15 boxes. So the FBI was reportedly tipped off by someone who led them to execute the search warrant. Attorney General Merrick Garland faces increasing pressure now to say something publicly about why the FBI conducted the search. The calls are not just coming from outside the Justice Department. CNN has learned some officials within the DOJ believe the department should provide a public statement. They argue internally, that the silence is harmful to the department and the public's interest. That's in part because Donald Trump and his allies have filled the void with angry, speculative rhetoric. To that point, the ex-president puts out baseless accusations today that the FBI, quote, planted incriminating material before searching his residence, trying to cast this as some sort of conspiracy against him. Trump or his team have a copy of the search warrant. Normally, it does list the items to be seized, and he could make that available to the public, but he hasn't. Meanwhile, the FBI's move shouldn't have come as complete surprise to him. A source tells CNN DOJ investigators subpoenaed the Trump organization for a copy of Mar-a-Lago's surveillance videos previously, and they were handed over, so that could have been a giant clue. It's been quite a week so far for Donald Trump, and it's only Wednesday. The search warrant was executed Monday at Mar-a-Lago. Yesterday, a federal appeals court ruled Trump must hand over his tax returns to Congress. And today, he had to appear at a deposition in the New York Attorney General's probe of his company. The deposition lasted roughly four hours, but Donald Trump didn't answer questions. He pleaded the fifth over and over again, despite insinuating numerous times over the years, taking the fifth is what guilty people do. You see, the mob takes the fifth. If you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? Now he says he has the answer to that question. In his words, when you're the target of a, quote, witch hunt, you have no choice. Now, the pressure is clearly building on the former president as his legal jeopardy intensifies. So many investigations looming over him simultaneously, including the Georgia election interference probe and the January 6th investigations. Let's take all of this to two people who understand the stakes. Nick Ackerman is a former Watergate special prosecutor and assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. And John Dean, you know him well, served as President Nixon's White House counsel. He was famously the star witness in the Watergate hearings. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. All right, I want to start with this. 
I will start with you, Nick. What are your concerns uh, with the GOP very loudly, forcefully? We're talking about people who are both in office and who are uh, big names in media going after the FBI's integrity in this case. Well, I think it just shows their total ignorance of how a search warrant works. You mentioned before that Donald Trump received an actual copy of the warrant, which he has not made public. But he also received a inventory of everything that was taken. So if anybody had any notion that anything was planted on there, all of the documents that were seized by the FBI would be on that inventory. And if there was anything that even looked remotely suspicious, Donald Trump could go into court to the district court judge who signed that search warrant and ask that that be looked at. They're not doing it. They're not showing you what that uh, inventory is. They're not releasing it to the public. If they did, we'd have a better idea of what the FBI was searching for, where they were searching, and what it was they were they seized. So what you're dealing with here are a bunch of ignoramuses who just don't understand how the system works, and they don't care to understand how the system works. And people would argue it is incumbent on us to explain that. I myself have seen what it looks like when the FBI leaves what I would call a receipt of all the things that have been taken. Um, and they do that in every case, uh, generally. So this one should be no different. Uh, John Dean. They have to. I have a question for you. When you see the landscape right now, because this isn't just a legal issue. This is, of course, and I think the FBI had to have known this, the DOJ certainly had to have known, that this was going to be blown up into a political issue. When you look at what is happening here, does any of this surprise you after what you have been through with Watergate? Looking at the scenario now with the way that the GOP is dealing with this, is this a surprise to you at all? It's a disintegration of the Republican Party. And the great irony, particularly in a case like this, is the silence of the Department of Justice and the procedures they followed are to protect the innocent, uh, protect Donald Trump. But yet they're turning around and painting it and painting the FBI in this process as guilty and somehow illicit and and uh, improper. It's just it's beyond irony. It's it's almost pushing towards the edge of obstruction. Uh, There are limits to the First Amendment. And if they start getting physical about this, then they're going to find themselves committing crimes. But the fact that the Republican Party has sunk to this base level and people who do know better, uh, people who are trained as lawyers are making these just outrageous comments about this whole process. And it really, I think at some point, Justice may have to say something to put this in context because we don't want riots over this. And that seems to be what the GOP would like. And I think that's what you're hearing from inside uh, the DOJ with people saying you got to say something. Uh, John, I want to ask you what you think of this reporting that has come out from The Wall Street Journal that someone tipped off investigators that there were potentially additional very sensitive documents that, um, you know, those who investigators have been talking to in the Trump sphere hadn't uh, let them know about. Do you think that this may have been key to why you saw a search as opposed to a negotiation to get more of those documents? It's very possible. We, as as you know, we don't know what exactly they were seeking. Uh, But it could have been a tip 
uh, that made it very timely for them, and they were able to know what documents were there and what was being done with them. Now, this could be, uh, these are apparently very highly classified documents, and the the National Archives is very, very sensitive to this issue. They go after documents like this. I know of instances where former high-level aides have had, uh, they've been threatened with prosecution because they, they took and kept documents. Uh, so they try to police this. They try to do it politely, nicely. But when somebody doesn't play by the rules, they go after it. And I think that's what the situation is here. They knew Trump had this. They got timely information as to where this material might uh, be or what was being done with it even. Uh, and they decided they had to move to protect the national security. Nick, one of the things that we've been hearing from Trump circle is that, look, he declassified these documents when he was president. No big deal. What do you make of that? Well, first of all, there's no evidence he declassified any documents. Secondly, there, there's really no evidence that this search warrant was directed at these classified documents. The only thing we know is from what the Trump people have said, who were present when the FBI uh, executed the search warrant. They're the ones that say it has to do with classified documents. We don't know if that's what it was. Again, if we had the search warrant and we had the inventory, we would know basically what the contours of that search warrant were. Um, but the fact of the matter is, I think there was somebody inside who provided the probable cause that a crime had been committed and that there was evidence of a crime. Because one of the things that you need in a search warrant is to have current information. It cannot be stale. You need something from the last 30 to 45 days that indicates that, yes, there's evidence of a crime in this particular location. So I don't think it's any surprise uh, that there is some insider who has provided the probable cause that ultimately led to this search warrant. John, can I just quickly ask you, how different is it now compared to your experience with Watergate? Watergate was the biggest thing in, that ever happened in, in the political realm in this country, if you, if you were going to argue about uh, criminality. What do you make of this? Very, very different. It's very different today. The, the whole atmosphere, the polarization, the treatment of people who are uh, involved in the process, it's much rougher today uh, because they're playing rough. And there was a lot of courtesy given during Watergate, assumptions people would follow the norms and do the right thing, that their lawyers would, that there wouldn't be lying, and there was trust. So things were resolved in a much different way. Nick Ackerman and John Dean, I thank you both for coming on and sharing your expertise with us. Thank you. More now on the Republican uproar over the Mar-a-Lago search ahead. What House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy is calling on all elected Republicans to do now about what he is calling abuses of power. That's coming up. House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy is sowing further distrust in the Justice Department after the Mar-a-Lago search. He posted this on Facebook today. If you're an elected Republican and you are staying quiet while Democrats in Washington are abusing their power, you are the very reason they think they can get away with it. Now is the time to speak up and be loud. 
Joining me now to discuss is former federal and state prosecutor Ellie Honig, former Republican congressman and governor of South Carolina, Mark Sanford, and our senior political analyst, John Avalon. Okay, so you just saw what Kevin McCarthy put out. What is this? Is this a, I, I hate to use the word called arms, but what is he asking Republicans to do? What does he expect to happen? Well, for, first of all, it's the game of project and deflect that he learned from Donald Trump, right? I mean, the, the idea um, that after standing by and defending Donald Trump, after politicization of the Justice Department, constant abuse of power, culminating in attack on the Capitol, um, that uh, somehow that Democrats are, are, are the aggressors and, and Republicans are the victims is a willful flipping of the script. It's a hall of mirrors. But it's also necessary precondition in his mind to keep in Donald Trump's good graces, which he sees the past speakership. And clearly, power is more important than principle in this man's case. Mr. Sanford, when you look at something like that and the questioning of the FBI and the DOJ, and it has been pretty heavy all day long from both those who are in elected positions and those who are big talkers on the right, what are they trying to do? I'd what are they trying to, to say? I'd go back to what John says. Uh, the, the name of the game for all too many in politics is a game of self-interest. And, and so the name of the game, to John's point, for Kevin is I want to be speaker and I don't want to do anything that disrupts my path to the speakership. And staying in Donald Trump's good graces, whatever that means, is, uh, I think, uh, paramount to his belief in, in him climbing that particular mountain. More importantly, though, what you see at play is a continued degradation of the institutions mm. that have held the American system in place. And that's the bigger danger, not, not, not whatever happens next with regard to Trump or not, but frankly, people's continued growing distrust in the institutions that have been part of the fabric of our republic for 200 plus years. I'm going to get to you in a minute, Ellie, because I want to talk about something that has been on a lot of people's minds. This is not just Republicans. The FBI's integrity. There has been in the past... There have been things that have come up, and in the recent past, I, I want to get to some of them. Um, you had the, the the Peter Strzok situation, who criticized Trump as this investigation was going on. They found, you know, the, the text messages. You had um, Comey's actions with uh, being called extraordinary and and insubordinate, according to one report. You've got the roles of the FBI and informants that were uh, that went very wrong in Michigan with the plot um, to kidnapped the governor there. Um, and then the FISA court came out and said, with, when it came to Carter Page and the surveillance there that the FBI conducted, saying it was outrageous. So you do have instances where people can actually look at them and say, these things did happen. This is why. Is that a fair idea that, that, look, there have been some things to question and they, they should be able to question this? It is absolutely fair. People absolutely have the right to criticize and question the Justice Department, the FBI, your local police. I think we need to keep in mind the big picture here. I can name more failures than that. There are many more, but there are tens of thousands upon tens of thousands of cases that DOJ and FBI and local prosecutors handle correctly, ethically, and effectively every day. Where I draw a line, and I think we're seeing it here to both Governor Sanford and John's point, is one, where you're fomenting or encouraging active resistance, resistance to law enforcement. We've seen where that can lead civil unrest. And we know the code words. One thing the January 6th committee has done really effectively is expose that, that they called it the siren call. And the other thing is, how do people think they know already if this is a perfectly good search 
or a horrible search. And we see it both ways, right? I'm not saying it's equal, but you see Republicans saying this is an abomination. Mm. This is a violation. And you do see people saying this is airtight and perfect. None of us know that. There's 10 people in the world who maybe know that right now, and they're all inside DOJ or a courthouse. So I think there's a lot of premature jumping to conclusions here. That is, there's a lot of speculation, John. I know you have Look, it, it's, it's particularly, um, I think, rough to see a party that calls itself and prides itself on being a party of law and order demonize law enforcement. I mean, I'm not just talking about the absurdity of some folks saying defund the FBI yeah. who are members of Congress. I mean, let, let's take the, 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 the uh, you know, chat rooms out of this. Let's talk about elected officials who have an obligation and, and who really ought to know better. Um, it is about the degradation of our democratic, democratic institutions, about the weakening of the guardrail systematically and cynically. That's where the danger comes in. And that's what we're watching in real time again. You talked about the fact that that there's this degradation going on. Um, But you are hearing calls to action. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily, I mean, you heard McCarthy, right, saying you better do something. But you're also hearing violent rhetoric that has come off of that. Because, you know, online, there's a lot of that. But that is exactly the kind of rhetoric that led up to January 6th. So how concerning is it when you hear something like that from McCarthy telling Democrats to do something, people should rise up, this could happen to you. Do you see there's going to be a violent fallout to this, ultimately? Of course, God, I hope not, uh, as an American. Um, But this is what happens when you play with fire. History is real clear. Look, we've been through far worse periods than this in our past. It's important to keep that perspective. It's important to keep your sense of optimism. Remember that the screamers and the shouters on the outer reaches of politics are a comparatively small number of folks. Where it gets dangerous is where people who hold elected office um, give credence to and pour fuel on that fire from that rarefied position. Because then people can start internalizing it and feel like they have permission, that they're being encouraged. That's the story of January 6th. And here we are within, you know, two years of that attack, and the learning curve seems to be close to zero. And, And that's where the danger comes in. They've um, learned that it works to rile well, up, and they're, they're fundraising off of it. I do want to get to you, Ellie. Yes. yes. The informant. <laughs> you know, this reporting from the Wall Street Journal now, we also heard this from Farah, who was on, um, saying, I bet you, I, I would put money on the fact that there's probably somebody who is pointing out that, hey, they have more than you think they have and more than they are telling you. Yeah. So there's this air of mystique or mystery or intrigue around the word informant, right? What do you think of Whitey Bulger secretly providing information to the cops or bubbles in the wire, right? The reality is informants are just people most of the time, just like me and you. They are normal people. So we have no idea who this person is. It could well be a run-of-the-mill staffer. And people provide information to law enforcement for all all different reasons, some good, some bad, some a little bit of both. And I will tell you the one thing that separates the best cops, law enforcement agents, FBI agents from the rest is how good their informant network is. That's how you learn things. That's how you get inside of these organizations. And it's really not a surprise because I saw reporting earlier from Tom Foreman saying that Mar-a-Lago is 100 rooms. And these are glitzy rooms with all sorts of chandeliers and closets and, and all that. They would still be searching that today. And I mean that not, not hyperbolically. They would still be searching that today if they did not know where to look. And so it's not at all surprising that they had specific information, look here, got what they needed, and were out of there in a few hours. We have one more thing to talk about, and that is the case that's here in New York. The former president sat down, although his children have talked, he pled the fifth. What does that say? Because in a civil case, it's different. I'm going to go to you, Elliot. In a civil case, it's different when you plead the fifth than in a criminal case. And this is a civil case. What does it mean? So... Practically, technically, legally. 
that can be used against Donald Trump in a civil case. You can stand up in front of a civil jury if Letitia James, the attorney general, does bring a civil lawsuit, which seems increasingly likely, and say, he took the fifth jury. You're entitled to assume the worst. You cannot use that against a person in a criminal case, period. I do want to say this. It's not quite right for people to say only guilty people take the fifth. Trump said that years ago. He's wrong. And people say it even today a little bit glibly. It's not true. It's not the way our principles are built. It's not the way our Constitution is built. Sure, plenty of guilty people take the fifth. Innocent people, wrongly accused, take the fifth. People who committed conduct where maybe we don't know. Maybe they're in a gray area. Maybe they're being investigated. They can take the fifth. Trump has that right. But we as the public also have the right to say that is a historic blight for a former president to, be put, to end up putting himself in that situation. All right, Ellie Honig and Mark and John, it's always an interesting conversation with you gentlemen. Please stick around just ahead. Charges by the Justice Department in an alleged Iranian plot to assassinate former National Security Advisor John Bolton. And he's not the only former Trump administration official said to be targeted. The details on that coming up. Welcome back. We're learning the murder plot made public today against former Trump National Security Advisor John Bolton is only one of several recent threats against U.S. officials by member of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard. Today, the DOJ announced criminal charges against a member of Iran's guard who allegedly tried to orchestrate Bolton's assassination. The suspect also allegedly tried to pay an undercover informant to assassinate former Trump Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. That suspect is still at large tonight. U.S. officials believe these threats are retaliation for the U.S. killing of Qasem Soleimani in January 2020 during the Trump administration. Iranian officials deny any involvement. My next guest followed Iran's Revolutionary Guard during his time at the FBI. CNN counterterrorism analyst Phil Mudd joins me now. Phil, thanks for being here. Sure. All right. Uh, Bolden was notified of this potential threat in 2020. Uh, Then the Secret Service, he no longer had them uh, protecting him. Um, And he wasn't granted Secret Service protection until 2021. And then these charging documents come in 2022. Why did the FBI go about it this way? And was it the right way to do things? Well, I mean, I'm not inside the investigation, but I'm looking at this saying, you've just touched on one of the most fascinating things, and that is timeline. If you're in the FBI watching this and you have threats to two senior U.S. officials and more important, two U.S. citizens, you have to control the operation to ensure that there's no risk to those citizens. You would sacrifice the intelligence, Sarah, if you thought there was an imminent threat to Bolton or Pompeo, who evidently was the second target here. So what does that tell you? Let's cut to the chase. The fact that this case has been running for a couple years tells me that the FBI owned the case from the start. That is, they had the confidential human source, the informant within the case. They're watching the case develop. The Iranians thought that they were running a case. And in fact, the FBI was managing the case from the outset. And the reason that the FBI wanted it to run, the reason that I think it was the right decision to let it run, is that if you want to take that case to a court, you've got to be able to say, this wasn't just talk. This wasn't just guys who were bragging. These were people who had information about U.S. officials outlining the indictment, willing to pay, willing to have conversations. The FBI wanted to let it run so when they went to court, a defense attorney couldn't tear the case to shreds. This 
is fascinating. The Iranians never owned the case. The FBI did, Sarah. I want to ask you, because you, you have long looked at and, and had great knowledge of Iran's Revolutionary Guard and how it sort of works. What's the end game here? If they were to, to assassinate uh, a U.S. official, what are they expecting is going to happen? World War III? I mean, what, what, what are they doing? Well, there's a couple things here. There's small and there's big. Let's go small. The simplest piece here is we assassinated Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Revolutionary Guard. He's not just a general, Ron. That guy was a legendary figure. So if you're sitting in the seat of Tehran, you can, I can see them saying, well, if they're going to take one of ours, we're going to take one of theirs. I think there is a bigger game afoot here that Americans would struggle to understand. The revolution in Iran is not that old. That's 1979, meaning the people in power in Iran were around during the revolution. Whom do they view as the biggest threat to the revolution? The Americans. Who are the biggest hardliners among Americans about Iran? Mike Pompeo is one. The former national security advisor, John Bolton, is another. So it's not just about a vengeance for Soleimani. It's about saying to the Americans, don't threaten our revolution. We know you want to overturn our government, and we will warn you about doing that. To me, as, as somebody who did this for decades, it's perfectly understandable, Sarah. Right, considering what, what happened before with the installation of the Shah. Yeah. Do you think that we will ever see this suspect? In other words, in your mind, a lot of people might say he's probably going to be a ghost. No, we will. Ne I don't think ever. Why would you if you were here ever leave Iran? I presume that's where he is now. But that's not the, the sole point to running the case here. You're going to look at this. And I think from the outside, you might say, why do you ever charge him if he's never going to leave Iran? Well, first of all, we don't know if there's anybody else involved in the case. It looks like not, but we're not certain. Second, and this is really interesting. If you're sitting in his shoes, you can never move again. You can't go to Europe. You can't go to a beach in the south of France. You can't go to Germany. You can't go to Latin America. You can't go to Asia. The message is also to the Iranian leadership and to people executing the orders of the Iranian leadership. You can stay in Iran forever, but if you ever want to leave that country, we're going to get you. I think this is significant, and it's not only whether they, he gets pulled into a U.S. court. It's the message that says you'll never travel again. Phil Mudd, thank you so much for your insight. Thanks. Coming up, sure. Trump supporters are furious about the Mar-a-Lago search, but that's just one source of simmering anger in this country across the political spectrum. Can anything be done to defuse things? That's coming up next. As you know, January 6th became a flashpoint for violent, politically-fueled anger in this country. That rage has not disappeared. It shows up in other ways, once again, threatening violence. An example, less than 48 hours after the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago, threats and other online rhetoric against the magistrate judge believed to have signed the search warrant. One commenter writes this, I see a rope around his neck next to a picture of the judge. CNN has not independently confirmed the judge's identity, and we are not naming him. The judge has also been doxxed and subjected to far more disgusting and violent comments than the one we just showed you. In response, an official government webpage has been changed completely, removing the judge's contact information. 
As this all unfolds, a number of prominent Republicans are fiercely condemning the FBI for that search. Some are making outlandish comparisons and spewing conspiracies. This is what happens in places like Nicaragua, where last year every single person that ran against Daniel Ortega for president, every single person that put their name on the ballot was arrested and is still in jail. That's what you see in places like Nicaragua. This should scare the living daylights out of American citizens. The way our federal government has gone, it's, it's like what we thought about the Gestapo and pe- people like that, that they just go after people. You really are now seeing the ugly face of a tyranny. We have no idea whether or not they planted evidence. That is the former House Speaker basically suggesting the FBI planted evidence. And to all this, add this. A long history of some current and former local law enforcement officials, militias, and other citizens who have long wanted to see an end to federal law enforcement. Just last week, I got an earful from a former sheriff in Arizona who runs a sheriff's association. He made this comparison about the role of the FBI after the January 6th attack. But what the FBI has done and the way they've been going after people and people are still sitting in prison without charges and without trials and uh, what they've done, oh my gosh, uh, it proves that the FBI will do anything they're told. They're a bunch of Nuremberg officers. They just follow orders instead of following proper law enforcement protocol. You just compared the Federal Bureau of Investigation officers. Yes. The rank and file. Yes. To Nazis. Uh, They just do what they're told. John Avalon and Mark Sanford are back, and we welcome Democratic strategist Maria Cardona to the conversation. Uh, That was difficult to hear, Mm -hmm. uh, and we did have a back and forth, because once I brought up the fact that when you say Nuremberg, you were talking about the massacre of six million Jews, and he said, no, 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 I didn't mean that. I said, but you made the comparison, and then he kind of said, well, yeah, because they only follow orders. I want to go back to what we heard from those who are in office, who are in power. And I will start with you, Governor. What did you make of the things that you just heard from people who are in the Republican Party and are currently serving and have been put in positions of power talking about the FBI in those terms? That a lot of people out there still want to be relevant. And so, you know, I was listening to Gingrich. I mean, he's not a dumb guy. Uh, whether you like him or Former dislike speaker him. Of the a House. Speaker House, and he's has an amazing historical context in terms of understanding history. So it's just reckless what he's saying, but he wants to be relevant. I mean, he sees that sort of the, he's at the end of the game and, you know, the Trump wave is the, the way to stay on the bandwagon. I'll play along. And I think it's unfortunate. And I think it, it, it underscores the importance of all of us as regular citizens making our voices heard. At the end of the day, the political system is a responsive system. And the people you see in office will do what they need to do to hang on to power. But the drivers of the agenda at the end of the day are you and me as regular citizens. And that's where all of us need to speak up and make a little bit more noise from the standpoint of sanity for a change because we've gotten away from that. Just in terms of what they've said, have they chosen party and power over the country? Yeah, but... Welcome to welcome to politics 101. I mean, I but I mean, not, but not I, everybody's I like doing it. that. I don't like it. I don't agree with it. But right now, we're living in a, a, a uber politicized environment wherein people have circled the wagons, and there's the red team and the blue team. I don't believe in it. I, I don't think anybody on this panel believes in that. 
But in terms of, the, of what's happening in the political world right now, that is what's going on. And so in that kind of, I mean, and that's why the founding fathers set up the system of checks and balances. They didn't want to see folks circling the wagon on, based on political tribes. It's why George Washington warned against factions, as he called them, political parties. I mean, but, but that's, that's the world we we're living in, though. That's where we are. But you, you did make this point, and now, Maria, yeah. you want to jump in there, yeah. because the Republicans have been particularly uh, prone to this, not as much the Democrats. They're, they're not doing the exact same thing. Well, it's not exactly the same. Uh, it, it, there'd be a lot of different No, that's, anyway. that, yeah. that's exactly right, Sarah. Now, you were absolutely right, Governor, when you said that these leaders are saying those things because they want to be relevant. But why do they want to be relevant? That, what they're saying is for an audience of one. It's for Donald Trump. And why is it for Donald Trump? Because he is still the leader of the Republican Party and they are speaking to his base, whom they believe, and I don't think that this is correct, because I still believe that Trump's extremist MAGA base is still a minority in this country, but they are loud and they scare the bejesus out of what normally would be common sense Republican leaders who have now drank that Kool-Aid about from that extremist base and believe the only way to stay relevant is by saying those kinds of outlandish things, which 10 years ago, they would have been laughed out of any real relevant political circles. But some of the primaries have shown that those who are saying these things are winning in the primaries, Republican primaries. I want to address, because you are really good on these issues, when it comes to militias, when it comes to uh, citizens or former or current law enforcement that believe that the federal government should be abolished. And this has been a longstanding thing. This didn't just happen now. Yeah. Uh, so you interviewed Richard Mack. Yeah. And he has been a longstanding sort of sheriff avatar for the militia uh, movement. Um, and, and, and people who believe consistent with what's called sovereign citizen beliefs that the federal government doesn't really exist. The highest uh, officialdom is, is the sheriff. Now, there are a lot of problems with this, most particularly reality. But the anti-government impulse in American politics, of course, goes to at least the Civil War right. and Reconstruction. Um, and then manifested, um, I think on, on pretty consistent grounds, the same spirit of aggressive defensiveness that was used, uh, Joanne Friesman shows us in her book, Field of Blood, that the sense of that they were victims they have to preemptively attack. And that's the justification that is so often used. What's Fascinating and I think important to get perspective on is the anti-government movements in America that have been particularly violent. In the late 1960s, when there was a lot of anti-government violence, it was predominantly from the left. Yeah, there but were those assassinations, folks, there were bombings. There were bombings was... all over this country, which yeah. we've largely forgotten about. Yeah. But they were not remotely affiliated with the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. They were protesting yeah. the Vietnam War yeah. and they had their own rhetoric of race and class struggle and whatever. In the late 1990s, culminating at a time with the bomb in Oklahoma City, we saw the militia movement embrace Christian nationalism and take part on the right. And then after Oklahoma City, it dissipated for a time. Militias grows enormously in reaction to the election of Barack Obama, but then continued under Donald Trump. People you and I have interviewed, people in the Oath Keepers and elsewhere. And that's what's so particularly troubling is that these groups said they were formed to stop a tyrannical government from taking over, but then rallied around a president who was head of that government. That's the dynamic that's so troubling is when these groups become paramilitary organizations dedicated to a person. That's what's different. But but, I I think what's interesting is the fuel behind it, which is there are just a lot of people on the right who have gotten tired of the promises of many on the right. We're going to limit government. We're going to limit government. And it keeps growing, keeps growing. It, 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 it seems this to entangle that. I, 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 I know, but, but that, that's the base of the fuel that started it because it really began with the Tea Party movement. I disagree. And it morphed I, into, I, yeah. I disagree completely. I yeah. think what is fueling it is what Donald Trump did 
when he first announced for president, using those extremist views, those the politics of resentment, the hatred, the biases, that's what he uses as fuel for that fire, and he continues to use it, and Republican leaders are following him in that path. Maria, Governor license. John, yeah. he said he's given him license. We're going to end on that for now. Stick around, everyone. It's not exactly a scene out of Ellis Island. The Republican governor of Texas is busing more migrants to New York City with no return ticket. How the Democratic mayor of the Big Apple is responding to this next. Texas isn't letting up, sending a busload of 100 additional migrants into New York City. You're looking at video right now from this weekend of a previous bus traveling into New York from Texas. New York's mayor, Eric Adams, says Texas Governor Greg Abbott is being cruel. It's just a mean and cruel thing that he's doing. There were some who wanted to go to other uh, cities where they have families. And they just packed him on a bus without any direction. And we learned that many people had to be reticketed. They wanted to go somewhere else, uh, but they just specifically targeted New York. But Abbott says migrants are traveling willingly, and he sent a copy of the consent waiver that travelers are asked to sign. You can take a look at that. It only lists Washington, D.C. and New York City as available destinations. Both cities say the influx of people is overwhelming agencies. Let's discuss this with John Avalon, Governor Mark Sanford, and Maria Cardona. I'm going to start with you, uh, Governor. I want to talk about what what is this? Why is this happening? What is the point that Abbott is trying to make? Uh, he's trying to make, the, the, the again, another cardinal rule of politics is that all politics are local. Uh, Temple Neal is an old saying, and, and it's true. And so, you know, 4,000 immigrants a day are coming across the border in Texas. And to give New York, a little taste of what they're experiencing down in Texas to send 100 folks, and we're talking, again, 100 versus 4,000 a day, I don't think it's that big a deal. So I think it's great politics. I think, you know, from a Texas standpoint, it's going to play very well for Abbott. And I think it can make it just a touch more real to folks that are saying, we're a sanctuary city, but now we're saying maybe we're not so sanctuary because we don't want your immigrants from Texas. I think what you're hearing from Adams is we're overwhelmed. What are your thoughts on this? I think what Abbott is doing is cruel. uh, Mayor Adams is right about that. It's inhumane. It is using migrants to be a political football, to play these political games. It is insulting as an immigrant myself. This is a governor that not just does not understand the issue of immigration and what actually needs to be solved and how to solve it, but he doesn't care. He has no idea and no willingness to try to figure out how to really resolve this for Texans. It's a waste of Texas taxpayer money. It is not on the path for a real solution. I commend Mayor Adams and my mayor in D.C., Mayor Bowser, for welcoming these immigrants and for doing what they should be doing, what the federal government needs to do, which is to actually adjudicate their asylum cases, if there are those cases, and then to figure out what to do in terms of their court cases, if they can stay, if they need to go. We need changes to our immigration system, and we hope, we wish that Republicans could join Democrats to make that happen. Well, and that's the real issue here, right? Look, mm-hmm. I mean, th- this is the politics of trolling masquerading as policy. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about sanctuary cities and the roots? Largely, it was actually a public health issue. Right. If you had, you know, undocumented immigrants afraid to come forward, that's that's one that's a, that's a major public health issue going back to, to when these things were started. The larger point is this. Too many politicians would rather demagogue this issue than actually take steps to solving it. And we know what a broad outline would be. Mm-hmm. And folks on the far left and far right wouldn't like it. 
but we could come to some agreement, strengthen the border, you know, you know, ease the path to citizenship, and, and reduce the burden these cities and states exactly. are feeling when they're feeling overwhelmed. So exactly. how about we stop demagoguing this issue and start dealing with it? But, 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 but in fairness, I, I, again, I was in the political process for 20 years of my life, and it was talked about for all 20 years. And at some point, people were like, we got to try something else. So, I mean, I get where Abbott's coming from. they got 4,000 people a day coming across the board. It's, it's a, not an excuse to use human beings for that kind of political football. It just it's isn't. a de facto open border. There, there, open it is not, a, no, it is not an open border. It's that not. is a Republican MAGA talking point that is just untrue. And it and it it, it, it uses 4, people a day. It goes to it goes to do more harm than good because it pits people against each other instead of really trying to come together for a solution. Democrats had a solution on the table. Republicans said no. Ultimately, though, you've had Democrats and Republicans in power, and as you said, for many decades, this issue has not been fixed, solved, even impacted in a big way. Well, we, we had the Gang of Eight bill around a decade ago mm-hmm. that then the Republicans couldn't pass through exactly. the House because they blamed uh, Eric Cantor losing That's his primary on immigration as an right. issue. Right. So, so, I mean, you know, if you really yeah. want to do the, the genealogy on this stuff. But look. But he know, really we, did lose that seat and immigration but not, was not, uh, in part I, No, I think that was actually, yeah. uh, that was overhyped. But look, you know, people right now, you see sometimes saying, well, look, the record number of apprehensions at the border. They're missing the word apprehensions, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. We do have border enforcement. That's right. Uh, we need to strengthen our border security. We need to find ways to bring people out of the shadows and mainstream them. We need to be doing all of the above. And, and the activists won't like it, but let's actually start solve this. We know what to do. And, and most, most you also have the issue of the dreamers, right? And Absolutely. that has been one that I think most, most people can agree on, and yet we're not there. We can use yeah. them. Yeah. All right, John Avalon, Mark Sanford, Maria Cardona, thank you so much. I will be back tomorrow night. But now you get the greatest. Laura Coates is sitting in for Don Lemon tonight. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.